the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about last week's train derailment in southern Ohio, which spilled toxic chemicals into the environment. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell will join us to discuss the impact on Michigan and the congressional response. Then we'll talk with local and national reporters about the lingering environmental concerns and what officials plan to do. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, celebrating and honoring black history throughout the year. Open to the public Wednesday through Sunday. Details and information on all programs and exhibitions at thewright.org. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Early last month, a train operated by Norfolk Southern derailed in the city of East Palestine, Ohio, while carrying really hazardous materials. 38 cars derailed in that crash, and it led to a large fire which led to the release of toxic chemicals into the land, water, and the air. While the investigation is ongoing, the National Transportation Safety Board has said that overheating of a bearing on a wheel on one of the rail cars likely caused the derailment. NTSB Chairwoman Jennifer Hammondy addressed the investigation last week. This was 100% preventable. The warning threshold is set by railroads, and again, it varies by railroad. We're going to look at that and see if that threshold should have changed, should change. This is a community that is suffering. So I don't care about the politics. What I care about is caring for them. What I care about is figuring out how this happened. The cleanup continues, of course, at the site of this train wreck as East Palestine residents raise really serious concerns about the health and safety of their homes and their environment. But even as this cleanup occurs over three hours and hundreds of miles away in Ohio, the impact of this accident still reverberates throughout the country, including right here in Michigan. That's because last week it came to light that hazardous waste from the derailment site was being transported to disposal sites in Michigan and in Texas. And what followed, of course, was outrage from local residents and Michigan officials who are all really concerned about the dangers of receiving these toxic chemicals, as well as complaints about uh, not receiving proper notification about the fact that it was going to happen. While there's no law that requires state or local officials to be notified of shipments like these, according to the Detroit Free Press, following complaints from local officials on Friday, the EPA took over control of the cleanup from Norfolk Southern and paused the transfer of this waste from Ohio to Michigan. 
So where does that leave this cleanup effort? And how will this affect our environment, not just here in Michigan, but in lots of other places, and especially in southern Ohio? And what are officials doing to prevent spills like this from happening again? I don't know that people think all the time about the ways in which we transport dangerous chemicals in this country over rail, near water sources, near communities. When something like this happens, it's inevitable that there will be a really toxic uh, outlay as a result. That's where we want to begin the conversation here on Detroit Today. A little later, we're going to be joined by Ian Duncan of The Washington Post, who's going to talk about the federal response to this event. But right now, we're joined by Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who was one of the first to sound the alarm about the transport of these toxic chemicals from the crash site in Ohio into Michigan. Debbie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. It's good to be with you. I wish we were talking about something else. I know. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of remarkable, I think, in 2023 that we're talking about these kind of chemicals on rails, these kind of chemicals spilling into water sources and the air and the rest of the environment. Uh, were you surprised to learn that they were going to transfer these hazardous materials from Ohio into, into Michigan? I have a very complicated reaction to that question. Um, we have two, so, well, there's more than uh, two. There's a, a third site, but both the Romulus Injection Well and the Van Buren site are ones that have, uh, Romulus was in John Dingle's district, and Van Buren has been in mind since I was elected. Mm-hmm. And I pay attention. I talk to the operators, and I am had an arrangement before uh, U.S. Ecology sold the material, I was notified when uh, certain things were coming in. But most people don't pay attention to the fact that we have these two sites and that toxic waste is being disposed of them every day. Now, it was incredibly politically stupid of everybody, uh, of no one to notify. When I first got the first call from somebody, uh, in the community saying they had heard this, I called the governor. She had not heard it. I immediately got on the phone and called everybody. I uh, texted Pete Buttigieg. I called Mike Regan, who's the director of the EPA, 10 other people at EPA, the White House, uh, Norfolk Southern, and uh, Republic, which owns the sites. Quickly, uh, I was sent a copy that the governor of Ohio had posted on his site that they were shipping some of the toxic waste from Ohio. I shared that with the governor. You know, we were very lucky. Um, Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I don't know which word to use, I've had a lot of chemical spills in my district in the last couple of years in different ways. And I know how to work the EPA. I know how to get on the phone, find out what's happening, and to get people to pay attention to it. Um, And within EPA had just taken over that site on Friday, little paperwork should have had it happen sooner. Uh, Everybody looked into it immediately, and quite frankly, those shipments were paused really within a couple of hours. I I talked to the governor about 10 times. We had numerous conference calls just trying to collect the data. So right now, the injection well will not get any more fluid. 
I, I doubt that any of, more of this will come to Michigan, though we've got to see what other sites have the capacity to handle toxic waste. And you can't say for sure that Van Buren's not going to get some of the ground soil. But we need to be using this to have a conversation on a lot of subjects. And the first thing I'm going to say to everybody, I've been opposed to this injection well. John Dingle was opposed to this injection well 20-some years ago. People need to pay attention to these. They shouldn't be in populated communities. I remember some recent controversies, and by recent I mean in the last decade or so, Regarding this injection well in in Romulus, and I and I do remember John being really concerned about that. But but just for our listeners who who may not know exactly what that is or remember those things, spend just a little time talking about what that is and why it raises concerns. Well, and I want to say to people, that, you know, this is a very um, delicate area because I don't want people to be scared per se that they're in immediate danger. There are, the state is required to permit these facilities. Uh, EPA has oversight as well. But you, when you have the presence of toxic waste in a populated area, especially one like Romulus that's so close to so many arteries that go into the Detroit River, is that really the place that hazardous waste should be stored? You know, 99% of the time things may be stored safely or transported safely, but look at, at the total chaos and harm, physical harm, that the derailment in East Palestine, Palestine has done. So um, there are very safe standards. Uh, the state monitors it, but quite frankly, the Romulus well has had several violations, the ejection well, over the last couple of years. People are not in immediate health uh, danger, but should one should a well be operating that keeps having violations, and should it be in that place? And I think that that's a question that coming off of this train derailment, we're going to have a national dialogue, and maybe people will pay attention to it this time because people too easily roll their eyes and say it's not my problem. So should we, as a state, stop accepting transfer of these hazardous chemicals from other states. I mean, it, it does happen. And these are chemicals that exist in, in our world. They have to be transported if we're going to live the way we do. Should Michigan just say, look, we're out of, we're out of this business? I think we need to have that discussion. I think that some of the permitting is up on the injection well, and you're going to see the communities have that discussion. I'm going tomorrow night to the DCC, the Downriver Community Conference, which is all the Downriver mayors have asked to have that discussion. But there are other issues that you sort of talked about at the beginning of this too, which is, you know, we're a heavy industrial site, manufacturing, it's jobs, it's been important. But trains regularly go through our area every single day. And some of them are carrying hazardous chemicals. How do we know what's on there? How are communities warned? Do we have preparedness in place? We were lucky. Uh, we had the tra- one week after East Palestine, we had a train derailment in Van Buren. There was one car that had liquid chlorine. Because I knew who to call, I called EPA within 30 minutes, and they thought it was a joke. Uh, I went, no, it's a new one. But they dispensed uh, an emergency response team from Ann Arbor before any of the Washington bureaucracy worked. That, train, that 
car didn't turn over, and they separated it from the rest of it so there was no danger. But we really need to have tighter procedures, and because even if we get rid of these sites, and that's one discussion we have to have, we are still, the reality is, they're going to be transported on trains through our communities. So what needs to be done to make sure that people are being notified, they're aware of it, and we have emergency response procedures in place? I'm talking with Debbie Dingle. Uh, she is a congresswoman from the 6th District here in Michigan, a Democrat who uh, represents uh, parts of Western Wayne and Washtenaw counties. Uh, we're talking about this Ohio train derailment last month and the chemicals that spilled into the environment, some of which have been transported to sites here in Michigan to dispose of them. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What kind of concerns do you have about this kind of business that we do here in Southeast Michigan? Should we be accepting uh, toxic chemicals from other from other places, other states. Uh, also, what do you think about the spill in East Palestine, Ohio? Were you surprised to learn that these kind of chemicals are uh, riding on the rails in our country every day through communities near water sources, of course, uh, near the air and other things that we depend on uh, in the environment? Is there a better way to, to do that? Uh, is there a better way that we should be thinking of to manage all of these things? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Charlie in Royal Oak. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Hey. Um, yeah, I've worked in the hazardous waste in transportation spill cleanup industry for about 40 years now and here in southwest michigan or southeast michigan and you know these facilities like u.s republics um formerly u.s ecology in in van buren have been operating for well over 40 years accepting this type of waste all the way from canada not to mention many other states there just aren't that many facilities here it's legal no one needs to be notified uh that i know of by uh, you know epa or eagle it's it's, it's licensed I think the real issue is, like uh, the congresswoman has said, we need to focus on better regulation of our transport modes because whether it's rail cars or barges or pipelines, this stuff happens all the time. In fact, unfortunately, we probably need more has waste sites to accept all the waste we generate because, frankly, they're just not enough. As far as the deep well injection Romulus, that's been controversial for many years. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure how it got uh, approved because it's been had problems over the years and. Um, this is just the way it is. If it doesn't go to Michigan, it's going to go to Ohio or Indiana or Texas. It's, it's everybody's problem, not just one state's problem. Uh, Charlie, I'm really glad you called. And, and your experience in the industry, I think, is a really important perspective to bring to this. Uh, Debbie, what, what is it that we should be doing? I mean, you, you said earlier we need to be talking about all of these things. Should what what should Congress be doing to better regulate these things? That is a congressional question. But but also, what should we be doing in Michigan to make sure that a these things are handled better? But but b that we decide really decide whether we want to whether we want to keep doing this. What's the what's the mechanism we need to pull here? So I'm going to divide this into three different categories. I think we need to have a discussion, and the time is now, about whether we want to continue to store toxic waste in our state. 
and we have an abundance of natural resources. They are close to many of them, and I think there will be a national conversation. Charlie's right. We do have to store hazardous waste someplace. Uh, so my point is, should it be in populated areas that are close to, you know, the Great Lakes, which is 20% of the fresh water in the world? So that's one question, and I think, quite frankly, that's going to happen right now, both at the state level and at the federal level. Two, I'm also going to tell you that we need to stop producing and finding substitutes for some of these hazardous chemicals. You know, nobody wanted to talk about PFAS 10 years ago. Nobody understood it. We now know it's a forever chemical. Uh, it's in the fish that everybody's eating, and it's in everything. It's, you know, in the Teflon pans. It's in the food storage wrappers. It's in the makeup. But guess what? We've created enough pressure in the last five years that people are stopping producing it. We've got to find a substitute for the firefighters to keep them safe. It has been important in firefighting foam, but we don't need it in our food storage wrappers or in or makeup or Teflon plans, even if you're a bad cook like me. And one by one, manufacturers are saying they're not going to produce it. We need to be doing that in other chemicals. And then three, we do need legislation uh, that's going to upgrade the safety of the transportation. I'm, I'm supporting things that will require rail carriers to give advance notice to state emergency response officials before running trains that are carrying hazardous materials so they know, so that they're ready. That train had one person on it in East Palestine. We should mandate the trains have to have at least two people, and I'm not even sure that's enough. enough. Obviously, there was a problem with the rear rail car wheel bearing, so we need to be looking at that. And by the way, the cost of penalties is nothing when the trains violate this, and for them it's a cost of doing business. It doesn't hurt them. So we need to be looking at a lot of issues. This incident is going to cause all of that to be looked at, the middle one, about discouraging the production of some of these chemicals is going to be harder, but storage and trains, upgrading train safety will be front and center. Okay. Yeah. Debbie Dingle, I know you have to run, but uh, I really appreciate you coming by to talk about this uh, today. And of course we look forward to what we will do in response, uh, both in Michigan and Washington, but uh, thanks for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you, Stephen. Have a good day. Safe day. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about this Ohio train derailment and the toxic chemicals that spilled into the environment. We're going to take a look at the federal response to this event with Ian Duncan of The Washington Post. He is part of The Washington Post's transportation team that is focused on covering the U.S. Department of Transportation. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social 313-577-1019 is the number here. Gloria in Southwest Detroit, John on the east side, Dan in Southfield. We'll get to you. Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. 
Really glad you've joined us. On Tuesday, in response to the Norfolk Southern train derailment in Ohio, the Federal Railroad Administration issued a safety advisory urging railroads to improve their use of trackside safety detectors. This was just one in a series of responses by the federal government, including calling on Norfolk Southern to join a program that would allow workers to confidentially report safety risks, and it urged railroads to evaluate their use of safety monitoring devices and training. But would these improvements have prevented this spill in East Palestine, Ohio? How common are these derailments, and can spills like this really be prevented? Why did this one happen, and what is the federal government doing in response? That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And to help us answer those questions and more, we've got Ian Duncan, a reporter who covers federal transportation agencies and the politics of transportation for The Washington Post. Uh, Ian, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about how and why this accident occurred? And I guess, is the federal response about uh, uh, I guess, taking notice of things that maybe we haven't been pay, paying as much attention to as as we should have before. Uh, uh, talk about this this world of toxic chemicals on the rails and the, the crashes that could occur uh, when we do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we have a pretty clear picture of certainly the moments now leading up to this derailment. Um, then the National Transportation Safety Board, that's an independent federal board, is leading the investigation. It, it leads the investigation in most serious transportation accidents, plane crashes, derailments, things like that, big, big road crashes. And so they came out with their preliminary report last week, um, which uh, provided uh, some some facts about what happened here. And so the key thing, I think, is that um, this train passed by three of these uh, detectors that are part of the, the tracks that are trying to, to see how hot the bearings are on, on the wheels. Um, it's a known issue that if these bearings get damaged and then they overheat, it, it can lead to a derailment. And so railroads have put these detectors along their tracks uh, and they try and monitor the wheels. And what we know from the NTSB's uh, initial report is that the first two detectors didn't catch uh, that, that that there was something wrong. They saw that the temperature was elevated on the on the bearing on the car that derailed, but they weren't. It, it didn't set off an alarm. And then it passed the third one, and it, it did set off an alarm. And the crew tried to to break and stop the train, but it was too late at that point, and the bearing had basically failed, and the, the train came off the tracks. Um, and so that safety advisory that you mentioned is um, is is calling on railroads just to, to look more carefully at how they use these detectors. Um, there's questions about how sensitive they are and how how far apart they're they're spaced. Um, I think that was an issue that probably wasn't really totally in focus before uh, mm -hmm. that, that NTSB report and has probably helped us kind of look at, in this case, precisely what might have gone, gone wrong or something that could have been done differently that might have prevented this incident. So I, I think for a lot of people, there was an element of surprise uh, in the news about this derailment. I'm not sure that uh, that most people realize how frequently 
trains are carrying hazardous materials uh, on the rails through through communities near water sources. Um, can you talk about this uh, this area of regulation from, I guess, the 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 transportation, the federal transportation oversight, um, and and how concerned uh, we should be, I guess, about about how frequently this could happen and the things that the federal government is doing to try to make sure that they don't happen frequently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there are about a thousand derailments a year, and so uh, you know you might have noticed that after this derailment, there'd be a story pop up you know, every day or every couple of days, oh, another train has has derailed. That's not necessarily sort of out of the ordinary, just from where we are with the historical patterns that you would expect to sort of see on average a couple of these a day. Um, I think, you know, talking to the NTSB investigators, they're certainly surprised at the level of attention that this incident has received. Um, but but they recognised pretty immediately that it was a, it was serious and was going to require them to to launch an investigation. Um, but uh, it, and and because the sort of hazardous materials involved were unusual, um, and uh, I, I think if you sort of the industry will say, okay, we might have these derailments, but if you look at how much hazardous material is moved by rail and how much. Um, how many trains there are traveling every day, they're, they're exceedingly rare. Um, and and that's, that's reasonable too. I think the position that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has taken, um, and I think that uh, you sort of hear from the NTSB, is where we can always be safer and we should always be looking for ways to improve safety. Um, the last time that there was a big push in this area was after... Um, a big uh, oil train um, explosion in Canada um, and nearly 50 people were killed. And that was a decade ago. Um, and so back then the concern was about these big long trains carrying almost exclusively crude oil. Um, and so there were some rules written around regulating those trains. Uh, and there's been a big sort of dispute about whether those rules were written widely enough, um, they didn't apply to this train because it wasn't carrying kind of a sufficient amount of hazardous chemicals. Um, so this is something that the industry and the government have been paying attention to for sure. Uh, but I think this latest derailment has really kind of caused it to cut through and become a big part of the broader public conversation. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's go to Gloria in southwest Detroit. Gloria, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for covering this as much as you, poss- you possibly can. It's a, it's a very serious problem, and it, it needs a holistic approach. And I just want to add a couple of things. One of them is, okay, so what about what are we doing worldwide to stop the the, the production of these chemical things that are nauseous to us. And I know there's ways and alternatives, and we talk about all the fossil fuel elimination and all of that. So that's at one level. The other one is the volume that we produce. What does that say to us? Is there something else we can do? The third point is, as citizens, we need to continue to be educated because we also use chemicals on 
stuff in our homes that we're not even aware of, so stop doing that, but education is important. The other one, and importantly, too, is um, two more. The, the, when I go to hearings in southwest Detroit, let's say about a new whatever, whatever, a permit for marathon, and I'm not just picking on them. There's a lot of other um, pieces, um, the other un- industries there. I... The citizens, we, we give our input. We, we ca- caution, and the people listening, the representatives from EPA or whatever, they listen, they get it, they're educated, they understand it, but they don't have any authority whatsoever to even make a strong recommendation. So the, the, the issue of power that lies perhaps on people that are, they are not as connected to the issue as we are, and then, uh, lastly, I, I, with all due respect to Republican, uh, the Republic facility or U.S. ecology or any other, mm-hmm. they talk about these injection wells that are well protected. Really, the earth moves all the time. Everything is in motion. Do we believe that that is going to be for the rest of its dirty life is going to protect these chemicals? I don't think so. So... It's an illusion in a way. They may be protected for the time being. So all those are aspects of many of the conversation that you're having, and it's multi-layered. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to add my two cents right, right there. I, I'm really Stephen. glad you called, uh, Gloria. Those are all really important points and things that we we kind of need to be thinking about as as we weigh the, the, the sort of options of response to, to this spill. Thanks so much. For the call, uh, let's go next to Chuck in Northville. Chuck, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to comment on the the question of should Michigan uh, accept this waste, or for, for that matter, any other state. Um, I worked in the environment business for thirty five years, and I'm pretty familiar with these issues. Just want to point out, back in the eighties, there was a case, a Michigan case, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court regarding whether we could take garbage from other states right. or from out of the country. And whether we like it or not, I'm not sure I'm going to use the right legal term. I'm not a lawyer, but essentially waste is an article of commerce. Uh, the state, there are businesses that are set up to make money uh, to do this and they have either garbage or hazardous waste. And in that case, and I'm assuming it would be the same here, the state states can't regulate commerce across state borders. That's uh counter to the constitution and sure. I, I don't i'm not saying i like it i'm just pointing out that i haven't heard that yet in this conversation admittedly i haven't heard the whole the whole conversation this morning but it's been a missing element we can't just say well we're not going to take it right and uh, we also have to think about what if every state said that <laughs> uh, <laughs> pointed out by right. congresswoman dingo we're a heavy manufacturing state there's no matter how well we do and we need to do better there's always going to be byproducts that we don't like that have to be properly disposed of Sure, it's Chuck, a part I, of our infrastructure system. Yeah, Chuck, I really appreciate uh, the call, and again, your perspective from many years working in the in the industry. Uh, Ian Duncan, uh, talk about the the I guess the politics and the legal aspect of states deciding how much of this they want to be involved with, and and I guess what federal transportation uh, you know authorities are able to do or not do uh, about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, for the when it comes to the railroads in particular, there is a pretty long legal tradition that they are subject to federal regulation and that the states 
can only play a pretty limited role uh, in in regulating railroads. Um, We've seen a few efforts to try and um, act um, some since this derailment by states. Um, But I think there's a real question about whether those laws will kind of stand up if they're challenged by the railroads or by anybody else. So it really does put the emphasis on uh, the Federal Railroad Administration and the US Department of Transportation and Congress, frankly, to to regulate. Um, so the the administration in Washington has said that they want to look at new rules. Um, one of the rules that they're pursuing, they were pursuing this last year, is to a, a mandate to have um, two members of crew on trains. And in most cases, that there would be a kind of an exception process. But that's the sort of standard that they're trying to lay down. Um, I think Congresswoman Dingle said that there was one crew member on the train that derailed. That's that's not right. There were there were two and there was a trainee as well. So it, it wouldn't have directly kind of come into play in this. But it's certainly something that unions uh, and people who follow the industry, um, that that's quite a high priority for them. But it's something that the industry has resisted. They don't want this to be subject to, to regulation and they've argued against it. They prefer that it's a, a matter for them to negotiate with their unions as they see it. Um, I think certainly they'd be interested in exploring operations with just a single crew member. Um, that rule is sort of in the process of being finalised right now. I mean, it probably won't be done for, for many more months, but it's something that the administration is pushing forward with. There's other ideas that they have for regulations, but they are limited um, by by what Congress has done in the past. And so they're calling on Congress to uh, make it easier to potentially broaden the definition of what counts as one of these special kind of dangerous trains that would apply some sets of rules uh, and potentially to uh, let the, um, the department have another look at requiring some new kind of braking technology on, on certain trains as well. So, so I also, before we have to let you go, Ian, I, I want to talk a little about the politics of this in Washington. Uh, there are there certainly have been some implications in the in the coming presidential race about who goes to visit the, the the derailment site in Ohio and who doesn't. But but I also know that there's political context to the conversations about uh, about the transit of these toxic chemicals, about the environmental regulations uh, that that are, that are involved. Uh, give us a, a thumbnail of of how all of that breaks down. So. There's been no, no shortage of people, Republicans mostly in Washington, who've been pretty quick to criticise Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg um, for what they perceive as an inadequate response. Uh, I think his team would say that they sent experts pretty much immediately to East Palestine to help with the investigation, and then they've pivoted now to these questions of regulation and what can they do to improve safety, you know, issuing that advisory yesterday, I think they're going to have some more news today. Um, and then I think a lot of that is just because Buttigieg is, is who he is, he ran for president before, uh, I think there's sort of expectation that he might try to do that again. And so he's quite an appealing target. Um, I think there is sort of more substantive political question that that Republicans in the past have been more skeptical of, of regulating I mean, lots of industries, but particularly railroads. Um, and we have seen this morning that uh, there was a bipartisan rail safety bill that's been 
introduced. Um, and so perhaps there is an opportunity now to try and cut through some of that partisanship and, and make some steps forward that the administration and Republicans in Congress would support. But uh, we'll see. And the, and the railroad industry itself is a pretty powerful lobbying force. And so you can't discount the fact that they might stick by positions that they've held in the past, opposing things like the rule for, for two crew members on trains, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Ian Duncan, uh, reporter at the Washington Post. Really great to have you here to give us the federal perspective on all this. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion about the Ohio trail, train derailment and the chemicals that uh, spilled out of that train. As a result, uh, Keith Matheny, who's an environmental reporter with the Detroit Free Press, is going to join us to talk more about the local reaction. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. As we heard today, local residents and officials raised concerns about Michigan receiving toxic waste from the Norfolk Southern train crash in southern Ohio to help understand the environmental concerns and how it impacts us here in southeast Michigan. I'm joined now by Keith Matheny. He is an environmental reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Uh, Keith, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be with you, Stephen. So what's the latest you've learned about the Michigan impact of this uh, from your reporting? Well, I'm going to admit that I was a little bit caught flat-footed over the weekend at the kind of massive backlash over uh, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio's uh, announcement that dump trucks full of these uh, contaminated materials from the uh, East Palestine site were being sent to the Van Buren Township, U.S. Ecology, Wayne Disposal, uh, Hazardous Waste Landfill. I, I guess I sort of, uh, my, my initial reaction was, well, sure, that makes sense. Uh, by volume, this is one of the largest hazardous waste landfills in the country, uh, and it's uh, now owned by Republic Services, the waste hauling giant, uh, and, and they were involved in the cleanup there in East Palestine. So it made sense to me that that would be a place where these materials went. But as you know, there was a very large, immediate, vehement reaction to that. Uh, And I believe that's just because uh, of all the attention that the derailment uh, had. And um, EPA, according to Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, EPA took over the cleanup from Norfolk Southern on Friday and listened to the concerns of governmental representatives and the public in Michigan and stopped those, uh, stopped that waste from coming here. They found something like three sites in Ohio and a site in Indiana where it's now going to go. As you can imagine, they're dealing with very large volumes of contaminated material, contaminated liquids here. Uh, so they need capacity. So they've had to use multiple sites, but they have stopped bringing to Michigan, and I've been told that it won't be coming to Michigan anymore. But, of course, the other question that then arises is, well, what else comes to Michigan on a daily basis that we don't pay attention to? Hmm. 
So, so I, I want to. I do want to talk about the the sort of broader context of things that come here waste wise that uh, that people don't know about. How much is this happening, and how concerned, from your perspective, should people be about the environmental effects of accepting waste and and other uh, other kind of disposals? So uh, U.S. Ecology is a, you know, a for-profit company. So they, you know, openly advertise to the world, to the, to the United States. Uh, you know, we want your hazardous waste here. If you go on their website, they talk about some of the things that they believe they're equipped to take. And that includes, you know, PCBs. It includes PFAS, those nonstick forever chemicals that are so much in the news now. It includes uh, elevated radioactivity waste from fracking. These are the things that they're saying to, the, to all around the country, please bring it to southern Michigan. Please bring it to Belleville. And, you know, the concerns are, Yes, this is a, a licensed facility to handle these sorts of things in terms of its liners, in terms of its systems to handle the leachate, the liquids that, you know, get laden with chemicals and kind of emanate out of these waste piles. Uh, but but those things don't always work. And there is a history, you know, going back many years of occasional problems. And And, and the other question I've heard people raise is, well, how does that stuff get here? Right. You know, it's coming by trucks. It's coming by trains. What routes are they using? When are they using them? You know, how much traffic is on the roads? What's the accident potential? Those, those are all questions that are probably legitimate to get answers to. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Keith Matheny. He's an environmental reporter with the Detroit Free Press, has been covering the environmental consequences of this train derailment in southern Ohio and the decision uh, last week to ship some of the toxic chemicals that spilled uh, to sites here in in Michigan. want to hear from listeners, of course, during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us and we can include you uh, that way. Let's go to Dan in Southfield. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Hey, you know, to me, this is a this is a very simple issue. If I walked over to my neighbor's house and I poured a bunch of poison on it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, to me, this is a very simple issue. If I went over to my neighbor's house and poured a bunch of toxic sludge on his lawn, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be arrested. Okay, I wouldn't have some government cover, or I wouldn't have some. The problem is we've abdicated responsibility to these government agencies. The, the Supreme Court said corporations are people. And at first it pissed me off. But you know what? Great. Corporations are people. So let's treat them like people. <laughs> and let's, open them up to the, all the liability that individuals right, have, right? Right. You, you decided these things. You decided it was a good idea to put this stuff on this real car. And, you know, it's your decision. Fine, big boy. Yeah. You know, uh, Dan, I, I really appreciate the call because I I think that dimension of it is really important. Which is how do we hold companies responsible for the safe transport of these things and the safe handling of these things? But then also, 
what, what kind of responsibility attaches when something happens and, and we have some kind of you know catastrophic uh, accident? Keith, can you help us uh, understand how robust the regulatory environment is to deal with corporations that that uh, that that have to deal with these things. I mean, that's their job. That's what they do. Uh, but then also, how how responsible can they be held when things don't go right? Well, certainly historically, when you when you think about you know the Exxon Valdez spill and the the the, the oil rig fire in the in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't end up seeing a lot of criminal liability emanating out of that. There may be some, you know, hefty civil penalties. But in many cases, you know, think about what a large corporation, Norfolk Southern, is. Even if they get a multi-million dollar fine and, you know, cleanup cost here, well, I'm, I'm sure they have liability insurance and they're a very large corporation. You know, they can write the check. And, and that's been sort of the corporate response historically, and that's been the frustration of a lot of people, is it's sort of a do do you know, round and round we go. There's a violation. You're, there's some level of bureaucratic holding of account, uh, but it involves a fine or some other corrective action until the next violation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan, really appreciate the call. And the comments. Let's go to John in East Point. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I think that this is a great opportunity for all of us to open our eyes to the condition of our infrastructure, um, whether it's the status of our our train railroad systems across the country or lack thereof when it comes to passenger trains uh, to our electrical grid, we're dealing with power outages. A lot of us in our neighborhoods are these days flooding that a lot of our neighbors have to deal with on a consistent basis. And I don't have to bring up our roads, but I will just to put the cherry on top of the condition of our infrastructure. And I want to say, Stephen, Keith, and the people at home, honestly, my heart breaks when I think about the decades of lost progress that we could have had had we invested better in our infrastructure. Hmm. Uh, John, I, I think that's a great point as well that, that um, you know, is not being discussed too prominently in all of this, which is that the infrastructure has a lot to do with the safety of handling these things and making sure um, that, you know, that accidents don't happen more frequently than, than they need to. And we have been woefully inadequate in in maintaining that infrastructure. Really great point. Uh, Let's go next to Joe in Rochester Hills. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great show, man, as always. Thank you. Um, I just had kind of a a question or comment around, you know, here in in Michigan, we've got Dow Chemical Corporation, probably one of the largest chemical companies in the U.S., Mm -hmm. if not the world. And, you know, what's kind of what's their record and what's their What's the responsibility of a company like Dow as it relates to them transporting? Um, you know, I, I walk my daughter's dog in Royal Oak. We pass the tracks there all the time, and there's there's constantly, uh, you know, freight coming by, but and the homes are right next to them, and, uh, you know, but no one really knows what's mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So anyways, just that's kind of my observation. Great, great question, Joe. And, and uh, Keith, uh, talk not just about Dow, but but the 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 rich i guess spectrum of 
companies here, especially in Southeast Michigan, that because of the business that they're in, uh, have to deal with uh, with these chemicals and and sometimes transport them often often by rail. That's actually something I'm hoping to delve into now. Uh, you know, going forward, um, there's been one of the things I've heard discussed is we we really need to think about you know taking these more hazardous materials that are being transported by rail away from population centers. And to be honest, I don't really see how that would work. Right, how would you do that? Because it's the population centers where the industries are that need these chemicals. So, yeah, it's, it's all, you, you don't even know what sorts of things are running through on the rails in very close proximity to schools, to residences, and it's happening daily. And it's happening, really, if you look at a rail map of Michigan, a freight rail map, it's every population center. It's Detroit, it's Grand Rapids, it's Kalamazoo, it's Flint, and more. Yeah, yeah. And and what is the the ability of state and, and federal government to to manage all of that? Is it is it? I mean, do we have the choice of trying to redirect these things or uh, or make them happen more safely? I don't really know that much about the rail part of it, but I can tell you on the waste part, there was actually a U.S. Supreme Court case back in the early 90s that stemmed from a St. Clair County landfill dispute, of all things, um, where where the, the county was trying to prohibit a landfill from accepting out-of-state waste, and the, the landfill sued. Mm-hmm. And it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court ruled seven to two in 1992 that garbage essentially is a commodity that can't be restricted from interstate commerce. So that same kind of dynamic is at play for these hazardous wastes coming in to our hazardous waste landfill, to our injection well, and to the other treatment facilities. Um, it's a commodity that w- that the government couldn't prohibit. Now there are some things they could do in terms of, uh, you know, perhaps imposing larger fees uh, to make it less desirable. Mm-hmm. Because again, the for-profit company wants it affordable, wants it desirable to bring here because that helps their business. Uh, the, the other thing you can do is not cite these locations to take this waste in the first place. But that decision was made long ago at the wing disposal site. You know, it actually started in the 1970s uh, before there was even a lot of regulation related to hazardous waste disposal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, Keith Matheny, it's always great to have you here on Detroit Today, but especially with regard to this particular issue, uh, it's great to have your expertise uh, as part of the conversation. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Uh, Come back tomorrow when we're going to discuss the case for young people running for office and how it affects our politics, the subject we talk about from time to time. Uh, How much opportunity is there for young people to make an impact by running for office? Also, if you like our show and enjoy listening, you should share it with your friends and other folks that you know. You can find it at WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get podcasts. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.